Do we share God's vision for the church? Do we share God's vision for the church? That's the question this morning. I wish you a blessed All Saints Day. It's a day set apart every year in the church calendar to remind us that we're part of a great community, not simply here, but also there. That is to say, we here are the church militant. They there are the church triumphant. We are one body in Jesus Christ. Here's Eugene Peterson in his wonderful book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, speaking about the church. I love that title, by the way, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. See what you make of this. He's gone from this world to the next, not that long ago, but a long-serving Presbyterian minister speaking about the church. Whether we like it or not, he writes, the moment we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that is, from the time we become a Christian, we are at the same time a member of the Christian church. Our membership in the church is a corollary of our faith in Christ. We can no more be a Christian and have nothing to do with the church than we can be a person and not be in a family. Membership in the church is a basic spiritual fact for those who confess Christ as Lord. It is not an option for Christians who happen by nature to be more gregarious than others. It is part of the fabric of redemption. There are Christians, of course, who never put their names down on a membership list. There are Christians who refuse to respond to the call to worship each Sunday. There are Christians who say, I love God, but I hate the church. But there are members of the church all the same, whether they like it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not. For God never makes private, secret salvation deals with people. His relationships with us are personal, true, intimate, yes, but private, no. We are a family in Christ. When we become Christians, we are among brothers and sisters in faith. Listen carefully. No Christian is an only child. So for a few moments, I want to think about the heavenly church and what it teaches us about the earthly church. So you're going to need Revelation. It's actually in the Bible. I promise it's in there. It's the last book. It's the one nobody reads, but it's actually there. So we're going to be looking at Revelation 7, verses 9 to 17, the, the New Testament lesson that was read first this morning. And I want you to consider for just a few moments some marks of the church. By the way, you could probably give me a hard time for this because Jonathan's just done a whole series on church matters, and here comes Kendall talking about the church again. But it's okay because we can never uh, tire of talking about this important subject. So look at your text and think about this portrayal of the heavenly church and think about what it teaches us about what it means for us to be church. First of all, I want you to understand that what was described here is a redeemed community. You can't get into this community except through one way. And it's there in verse 14. And the language is very specific and very important. Who are these clothed in white robes? And where have they come from? Sir, you know, I said to him, and he said to me, you see where I am, verse 14? These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Question, how did the people whose shoulders we now stand on come into the church? Answer, washed in the robes of the Lamb. How does anyone now, ourselves included, come into the church? Washed in the robes of the Lamb. How does anyone in the future, if Jesus tarries, come into the church? One way and one way only. It's all the same way. It's all through the same door. The former bishop of South Carolina, Fitz Allison, used to often say, can you see the blood? Can you smell the blood? 
He would ask about a church or about a book or about a theologian. And if you couldn't see or smell the blood, he was upset and he was concerned, not because he thought God was bloodthirsty or he was obsessed with blood. It's because the image of blood speaks to the nature of the salvation into which we are brought. It's why the prayer book has us say every week in the comfortable words, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The only way that you get in is to be washed in the blood. And the reason why you have to smell the blood and see the blood is because the cross is the center of everything. And it's through faith in his blood. And that's actually, by the way, the language that's used in the prayer book, right one. I don't know if you know that, but if you don't, you need to this morning. It actually says, and I quote, and through faith in his blood. That very language from Cranmer to us, and it's very specific. One story from the 19th century, back in a different time, but an interesting one, when you think about what this actually means in terms of salvation and how you get into this family. It's a story of an orphan boy who was living with his grandmother when his house caught fire in this particular English village in the 19th century. The grandmother tried to get upstairs to rescue the boy, but unfortunately she perished in the flames. And as people came to help, one of the people who came to help was an old man who climbed up an iron drain pipe, got the boy, and came all the way back down the iron drain pipe with the boy hanging tightly to his neck. So his grandmother died, but the boy survived. Now, this was a period of time when communities would do this kind of thing. They had a public hearing to determine who in the community should have charge of the child because all of his family was gone. He'd already lost his immediate family, and his grandmother was all he had left. There was a farmer, there was a teacher, and the town's wealthiest citizen, and they all came to this hearing and gave the reasons why they should be the one to give the boy a home. But as they talked the boy's eyes remained focused on the floor. Then a stranger walked to the front of the hearing and slowly took his hands from his pockets, revealing severe scars on them. As the crowd gasped, the boy cried out in recognition. This was the man who saved his life. His hands had been burned when he climbed the hot pipe. And the boy, being a boy, didn't even hesitate, not done decently in an order. He just did it anyway. He just leapt into the man's arms and held onto his neck for dear life, just like he did on the pipe. In which case, in the hearing, all the others walked silently away, leaving the boy and his rescuer alone. The point being, the marred hands settled the issue. Many voices are calling for our attention. Among them is the one whose nail-pierced hands remind us that he has rescued us from sin and its deadly consequences. It is through his blood and his alone that we come into this community. Are we all together so far? You only come in through the blood of Christ and its washing. Point number one. Point number two is it's a worshipful community. It's fantastic stuff. After this, I looked, and there's all these people, and what are they doing? They're saying, I'm okay, you're okay, it's great that we're together. Nope. Look at your text. That's, you're supposed to be laughing. That's not what it says. It's not an American text. They're all together, and it says, look at your text, verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God. With one voice, yes. With a calm voice, no. With a low voice, no. With a medium voice, no. With a loud voice, because they cannot possibly contain themselves 
with their desire to worship. Salvation belongs to our God. And all the angels, verse 11, were standing around the throne, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. It's one big, glorious, majestic, never-ending worship service. It is awesome. Now, uh, I have to contain myself because I taught the book of Revelation for two years in Sumter, really. And what it is, if you get a chance to go through it, is basically John parts the curtains, and at every conceivable level with all these incredible images that he throws up on this giant canvas again and again and again, it doesn't matter where I put you down in the book, it's a depiction of worship. And I never tire of pointing out to people that the most famous piece of music in Western history, Handel's Messiah, and the most famous section of the most famous piece of music in Western history, the Hallelujah Chorus of Handel's Messiah. Oh yes, the words, you remember the words, the kingdom of our Lord and to his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Where does that come from? Oh, it comes from the New Testament, but it's that book that nobody reads. It's from Revelation. It's no accident that the language of the most well-known section of the most well-known song in all of Western history is from the book of Revelation because it's one big worship service. One story, brothers and sisters, just one about worship. We're back in 1981. Now, this is a tricky one because it won't do any good unless I set the scene. So we're January 20th, 1981. It's not like the time in which we find ourselves today. You and I live in a mean time and a divisive time. That's a story for another time. But this is not like that. In 79 and 80, this country was going through a dark time. It was very dark. It was a recession. It was the Cold War. For those of you who know your history really well, we had the um, Olympics and Lake Placid and the the miracle on ice against the Soviet Union. And part of the reason the miracle on ice was such a miracle is because we beat the Soviet Union with whom we were fighting in the Cold War. And the, the sense of darkness and powerlessness of the country was chiefly focused on one event, which was the taking of American hostages in Iran toward the end of 1979. And those hostages were in captivity, are you ready, for 444 days. There was an attempt under Jimmy Carter to rescue them, which you can read about called Operation Eagle Claw. It failed. So these American hostages were in captivity and nothing we could do, we supposedly were some big superpower, apparently, we couldn't get them out. So there was a dark recessionary Cold War feel and then there was this sense of impotence. And then finally, 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 444 days later, we got them out. And they were in some miserable conditions. I read, one of the things I read this week was an eyewitness account of what they looked like. Some of them were in just completely uh, disheveled and torn up and had hardly eaten for weeks. It was awful to read about. So here's my question, which is why I'm setting the scene. What was the first thing those hostages did when they got off the plane? It's a really interesting question. Now, you would think a good answer might be greet their families. That's coming. Maybe they shook the hand of the president. That's coming, too. But that's not the first thing they did. They all did the same thing. The first thing they did when they got off the plane was they knelt down and they kissed the ground. 
no matter what star or achievement they had earned in the armed services, when they hit the ground, coming back from around, they bowed down, home sweet home, putting clean lips on a dirty tarp, they kissed it. They went down. Question, why? Why do that after all that time? Because they knew where they had been and they knew where they are now. You know why folks stop bowing down in the church? Because they forget where they've been and they lose track of where they are now. They forget that they have been hostages in Satan's territory and they have now been made free. We are freed from sin, yes, but we are freed for worship. And part of our calling as a community of God's people is to learn to bow down. It is instinctive to bow down. All they're doing in Revelation again and again in every scene is bowing down. You all with me? So first, redeemed. Second, worshipful. Third, wonderful stuff, this. Diverse. Did you catch it? And after this, I looked and I saw a whole bunch of Americans and they were all speaking English. It's not what it says. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't say that. Did you catch it? It says, a great multitude, everybody see where I am, verse 9, that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages. It's diverse. It's a multinational, national, multicultural, multiracial, multilingual community of the people of God. That's the way that the church got instituted on Pentecost, which was a reversal of Babel. You remember that. Babel was when everybody sought to become God and build a, 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 a tower in our own strength and talk about how great we were, and God confused everybody in all those diverse languages, and that all gets reversed at Pentecost, and all those diverse people who stay diverse with all those different languages and customs and particular uh, aspects of their own tradition and background, they all become one in Christ Jesus through the power of the Spirit. That's the nature of the church. So if you do church right, you have to see it, as one writer says, as a salad bowl. A good salad has got all kinds of stuff in it, every kind of different taste. It's a mixed salad of the best kind. That's the church. Now, there are lots of ways to talk about this diversity. I just want to mention one as we go flying by, because I think it's a particularly important one from church history, and it's from the Pentecostals. I don't know if you know about the Azusa Street Revival, but if you don't, you need to. We're in the early part of the 20th century, in the 1910s, roughly, in Los Angeles, and this huge revival broke out among the Pentecostals. And there are lots of aspects of the Pentecostal movement that we need to learn from. But one of the most striking aspects of this particular revival is it was astonishingly diverse. Listen, this is one church historian's describing some of the early scenes. Blacks, whites, and Latinos worshiped together and women played an important part in their ministry. They were fond of saying, I, I adore this line, the color line was washed away in the blood of Jesus. This was because they saw their unity in the spirit. Males and females, whites and blacks, rich and poor, all were conduits for the same spirit. Equality was discovered not by disregarding differences, but by finding their source of unity within diversity. The color line was washed away in the blood of Jesus. We don't even know if they're going to speak English in heaven, just for the record. 
But whatever's going on up there, it's going to be unified and yet diverse. It's very clear from this passage. And any church that somehow doesn't reflect that in terms of the way that it treats its community, no matter who we come in contact with, no matter what their socioeconomic or language or whatever background, Jesus died for them. And a church that cares about this aspect of diversity ministers to everyone the same way. And the question has to be asked, is that true of us? Because it's certainly true of the church that's described here. So redeemed, worshipful, diverse. How about one more, just for the record? I love this one. It's glorious. It's there twice, actually, if you go flying by, but I want to make sure that you see it. Look at verse 9 and look at that language. Yes, they're washed, but they're clothed in white robes, and that language is deliberate, and just in case we missed it, it's repeated again, the language of the white robes later in the passage. They have washed their robes and made them white. You see where I am, verse 14, in the blood of the Lamb. So white in verse 9 and then white again, at the end of the passage. That is to say, the picture is of God indwelling his saints to such an extent that, yes, I know it's hard to conceive of, but this is the reality, we somehow glow and radiate with the very glory of God himself. Think about the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember the scene. Matthew, Mark, and John are up there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and his clothes become translucently white, and they can't handle it because it's so overwhelming, it's so overpowering. And part of the message of the glory of God as it's going to work in heaven with the redeemed community is we will reflect the glory of God to such an extent that we will radiate with that same glory. Which means what? It means C.S. Lewis was right. You knew your C.S. Lewis was coming. It means that he was right when he said in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, there are no ordinary people. There aren't. Here he is preaching It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to one day may be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would either be so strongly tempted you would want to worship it, or else a horror and corruption so hideous you could imagine seeing it only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree or other helping each other to one of these destinations. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal in your life. It is immortals that we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, either becoming immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. There are no ordinary people. And I just taught um, Great Divorce for six weeks, for those of you who suffered through it. And one of my favorite scenes is in chapter nine because you get to meet Lewis's hero, And what's so great about chapter 9 is when you meet George MacDonald, who's the person outside of Jesus who's influenced Lewis more than anybody else in history, according to Lewis's own testimony, he describes George MacDonald in heaven just as if I'm trying to describe him this morning. That's to say, he describes him the way he's going to look there, not the way that he looks here. Here's Lewis in his own language. See what you make of this. This is fantastic stuff. On one of the rocks sat a very tall man, almost a giant, with a flowing beard. I'd not yet looked at one of the solid people in the face. Now, when I did so, I discovered that one sees them with a kind of double vision. Now listen to this. Here was an enthroned and shining God whose ageless spirit weighed upon mine like a burden of solid gold. 
And yet, at the very same moment, here was an old, weather-beaten man who might have been a shepherd. Boom. That's God's glory, right? It's, he, when he first sees him, it's like he almost wants to bow down because God's glory is shining so much. It's like an enthroned God. And that's our ultimate destiny. So, redeemed, worshipful, diverse, glorious. You all with me so far? All right, I got a couple questions and I'm done. So, some questions for you to consider. I'm just going to give you two on All Saints Day. The first is this. <clears throat> I'm going I'm to ask it in the plural sense. Are we confident? I want, I'm after that first one, washed in the blood of the Lamb. You do know that the whole book of Hebrews is written to a Christian community that's not very confident. And you do know that if you're not confident, you can't do much, right? Have you ever seen somebody trying to play sports who has no confidence in their ability to do it? Hopeless. Ever see a student in class try to learn? Both my parents are teachers. You know that. What was their favorite thing to teach? A motivated student. What was their nightmare? An unmotivated student who thought they couldn't do it. Terrible. You have to try to find every conceivable way to buck the person up. If you don't have confidence, you can't do it. It makes me think of Maggie Thatcher's quip to George H.W. Bush. Don't let don't, George, don't let your knees go wobbly on me. Right? Well, the whole book of Hebrews is written to wobbly need Christians. You just don't get the sense with this group of people that they're up there saying, oh gosh, I wonder if we should be here. Jeez, what should we do? I wonder what, what, gosh, I wonder if God accepts us cheapers. No, no, no. The whole point is, brothers and sisters, when you get up, you've got to remember 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we are children of God. Pause. That's awesome enough, but it's not done. And so we are. One theologian has called it the glorious confidence of the children of God. What a majestic phrase. The glorious confidence of the children of God. When, when God really uses a church, it's a church that's confident. A church that's confident can evangelize. A church that's confident can worship. A church that's confident can pray. Y'all with me? That's point number one. Are we confident? Number two, Jonathan had it in his prayer. Are we hopeful? Hope is a theological virtue. It's very, very powerful. But when you think about hope, I don't want you to fall into the trap of thinking about American optimism. You do know that you're in a culture which doesn't really understand hope the right way, right? American optimism is the vain hope that in our own strength, somehow, the next day will be better, right? The New Testament knows nothing of that. That's not the New Testament concept of hope. The New Testament concept of hope is, the definition of hope is confidence grounded in the character of God. It is a reality that is coming because it, it will come through the character and the work and the power and the promise of God. And every generation that's come before us was characterized by their inability to be anything other than hopeful that the best was yet to come because they believed it, the Bible taught it, and they knew it, and they lived it. Do we? Now, I want to be even more specific this morning because you've got a picture of heaven that needs to fire up your imagination in this passage. When it says in the Eucharistic liturgy every week with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, 
Part of what you need to realize is every week when you take Eucharist, they're there and we're here, but it's the same Eucharistic table. So my friend Mike Lumpkin is doing a, a funeral for a couple that have been married over 40 years. Some of you heard this story before, and, and he's going down the, the altar rail, and these two wafers get stuck when he's giving it to the, to the husband whose wife has died, and he can't get them unstuck, and it doesn't matter how hard he tries, he can't get them unstuck. And then all of a sudden he realizes God's trying to get his attention, and he gives him, him two wafers because she's receiving a wafer on the other side. And now whenever he does a funeral for people who've been married, if their spouse is dead, he always gives them two wafers. That's exactly the image. So here's the thing that's got to fire up your imagination. You have your saints, I have mine. But it's very specific, this passage. It's not, it's not vague in any sense. Part of what it means to be a Christian is we long to be reunited with people in our family who are no longer here, who we personally miss and long to see again. So when I first came to Sumter and actually interviewed for a job, at Holy Comforter Sumter, the guy that I was uh, sent to live with was a bachelor whose name was um, <clears throat> Murdoch Walker. And he didn't give me any choice. He just, he's a huge guy, bear of a man. He just walked up and gave me a full body hug, no warning. And I felt like he, I felt like he almost crushed every bone in my body. Now, we, we got to be good friends. I ended up serving there for three years. He's now gone to glory. You have your image, I have mine. I'm looking forward to getting a hug from Murdoch Walker because he's there and I'm here and I miss him. But that is something that is hopeful for me. It means something to me. This is a, is a day that's set aside for you to think about the fact that you have people in your lives that you're separated from and your ultimate destiny is not that, but to be together again in Christ Jesus. And that is something that is meant to fire up our hope. So I give you, brothers and sisters, the glorious image of the heavenly church. It's a community that's redeemed, worshipful, diverse, and full of hope. May we also be like that. In Jesus' name, amen.